This is the Coming Black to Africa podcast, a show focused on helping you, the African diaspora, with your return home journey. Whether you have roots here or not, each week I'll host someone who will share their experiences and tell their stories to help you prepare and navigate the integration ups and downs. My name is Robert Agufanabel, an Afro-Caribbean traveler, passionate about promoting and representing Africa. I am a champion of creativity, and I'll be the captain of this flight. Now, let the journey begin. Greetings, travelers. In today's journey, you're going to be hearing from yours truly, your host, your captain. That's me, Robert Agufana. And I'll be doing a solo episode. So we're not going to be airborne in today's uh, podcast episode. We are making a layover. We're going to be um, considerate grounded. Um, I haven't spoken to you in a while. Um, we've been doing and having co-pilots on the show and have a bit of guests telling us their experiences. Well, in today's episode, I want to continue with my experience, with my coming Black to Africa experience. I started off this podcast telling you a little bit more about myself and about my my experience and my journey of coming Black to Africa. It's been a long journey, um, lots of decisions, indecisions, or, you know, so many ups and downs in the journey. And I just wanted to delve a bit deeper into that in today's episode. Uh, if, you're, if you're new here, you should check out the, the first few episodes. Uh, we've done wonderful interviews. Um, the most recent one with Yvonne, particularly for those who are young professionals, uh, she shared her wealth of knowledge about working um, in Kenya and in Africa, understanding the corporate culture, um, and navigating your way around that very good resources she's given us in that episode. You know, before we've heard from, before that we've heard from Dr. Duncan Ojuang, who helped us to understand what it means to decolonize the African mind. Um, having been born in Kenya and studying in the in the U.S., being a lawyer, um, he's had a wealth of experience in what it meant to come back to Africa. And and we've had Tiffany Anderson. Uh, telling us um, how she started away to Africa to help encourage um, African diaspora to come black to Africa to visit. To she organizes tours, and who can forget the monumental flight? You know, the first um, flight from the African continent to the Caribbean from Nigeria going all the way to Montego Bay in Jamaica. I mean, they have wealth of resources there, and, and, and I'm committed to bringing you much more interviews and much more experiences to make you feel more comfortable with your coming black to Africa journey. All right. Well, on today's episode, as I said, I'm going to delve deeper into what I mentioned in the first podcast episode about my experience coming back. And I want to pick it up with... Something that I mentioned in that episode, um, um, a monumental event, if you want to call it that, happened in my life when I was, you know, a teenager, and this was in 1998. Um, around Easter, my my father passed away, as I mentioned in the first episode. And at that point, I mean, you know, as a teenager, you you don't really understand. I mean, who does any anyway understand death? And no one up until that point, um, as close, that was the closest person who had ever died around me in my life. So it, it, it was a shock. It was literally a shock. Um, you feel like you're, you're in this times, in this warp time zone or, you know, just this al alternative universe. And so it, it was, it was very difficult. It was difficult because 
you just don't know what to do. How how does life move on? And I could see even the impact it had. And my mother, I can even ima- I just imagine losing a spouse. That that must have been very heavy. And and being and uh, sort quote unquote in a foreign land, if you want to say that. I'm um, still trying to get her integration um, there in Antigua. Going, you know, having born been born in Kenya and, and going to university in in the U.S. in Minnesota. And so it became quite a bit, and I encouraged my mother and my sister at that time to, you know, let's take a break and, and go to Kenya and just, just take, spend the summer or the Northern Hemisphere summer, which, which are the months of July and August. Obviously, that's when we get the longest holiday um, from school in Antigua. And so we decided, yeah, let's just come to Kenya to relax, to, to see, you know, just to re-strategize and reorient ourselves. But I also had an intention of coming to figure out if it was time to move. You know, I had that forefront in my mind, um, mainly for the sake of my mother, you know, to be around more family, to, to help her, you know, get through the grieving process and to have a support system. So that was one of the main reasons. I have an elder brother at that time. He, he's an American citizen, so he was um, in Washington, D.C. at that time, you know, going through school, ETC. And so we did. Yeah, we did get to... Kenya, and we spent the summer months, and, and, and they were good. They were very good. I mean, visiting Kenya has always been good for us, um, great experiences. Uh, you get to see quite a bit of family, and it, it worked out quite well uh, in terms of helping to heal, helping to feel supported, just, just being away from the day-to-day reminders of, of how life was at that point in time. School, a very foreign concept to me, <laughs> very strange concept to me, um, because where I was where I was raised and, and brought up, I, I, I didn't know anyone who was in boarding school. That was mainly for someone, from my understanding, who, like someone who lives in London and who lives so far away from, you know, a different town and has to, you know, for, but boarding in high school, that, that was a strange concept to me. And I asked them about the experience. They talked about school. We actually visited the schools. Um, I visited some of the schools they attended um, just to see how, you know, school life was, what activities they were doing. And and, and it was good. It was good. Um, the challenges that I had, though, were uh, school was, was so, mm, I, I'm trying to find the right words to explain it, straight jacketed for me. I mean, coming from a more westernized influence of schooling system, a bit more, a bit liberal, I, I found boarding to be very restrictive and it, it it could work in my favor because it would allow me to just get away from you know the issue of you know having lost my dad and having to deal with that so it, it, it on a positive side it would work out quite well for me because it would allow me to just immerse myself into you know a totally different world but I didn't want that I, I didn't want to run away from the fears and challenges that I had. I didn't want to run away from the reality of life because I knew doing that would just make it more difficult down the line. I, I wanted to be able to find a way to work through the problem. Um, and so time came to make a decision and I decided, let me go back. I decided, let me go back. I'm reintegrating at this time and, and I was thinking about my younger sister also and I was like, reintegrating might, might prove to be a bit challenging um, because... You know, the world was different at that time. I think the, the, the biggest challenge was there's no one who I knew in this new world um, who knew anyone in my former life, you know, or my life in Antigua, and vice versa. No one who I knew in Antigua knew anyone who I knew 
in, in Kenya. So I was like, if, if I decide to move to Kenya at that point, I would literally have to start all over again. New friends, new everything. Yes, there will be a very strong support system. But it's as if that will be the end of, of that experience. And, and I enjoyed my experience growing up in Antigua. Um, of course, everywhere has its ups and downs and, and disadvantages and advantages. But by and large, I enjoyed, you know, island living and, and relaxed way of approach to life. Uh, and, and perhaps, you know, just understanding the Western culture. Um, that was quite heavy, a heavy influence on my life. And so I decided, I, I decided, um, and my family here in Kenya told me, look, we, we're, we're going to support you either way. You want to move back here, it's fine. We'll get you oriented into school and into society and everything. But I just felt that I would be doing myself a disservice if I don't go back to Antigua and, and, and you know, just deal with how to recover from an issue. And, and I didn't want to start signaling to myself, whenever things get tough, you run away. I wanted to be able to deal with the issue head on. Right, so we made that decision, and that led me to just be very resolute and said, okay, you know what, let's change, change our flights. Since the decision has been made, I think it's time for the fairy tale to end, you know, enjoying this nice holiday. Let's go back and start rebuilding. And in those days, you had to, I, I think, you had to go and confirm your ticket. You know, back in those days, in, in, in 98, you had a, physical ticket, you know, like in an envelope sort of um, <laughs> a paper printed out. Uh, those of you who traveled back then could uh, relate with that. And for some strange reason, for such international flights, I don't know the reason why I tried to research, but I couldn't figure it out. Maybe someone can let me know. Is You have to go and confirm your ticket, uh, particularly in Kenya. I, I don't know why, um, but you have to go confirm your ticket. And where we would get our, our tickets were in this heart of the the city, the central business district in International Lifehouse. Uh, and for me, that was where the most security was in town. Getting into that building was was no joke. Um, you had to leave your ID or your passport, you know, you get in, and then we, we proceeded to go and confirm our ticket. You present yourself physically. I think maybe if you're a child or under 18, a guardian could do it for you. But anyway, I, I decided to go with my aunt, and we went to town, and we confirmed the ticket. We changed the flight. We changed the flight, and the, our preferred airline at that time was British Airways. Uh, British Airways was our preferred flight because we had an, I, had an, I have an uncle who was a manager at British Airways in Antigua, and so we, we just made it our preferred flight. And also the options were quite few back then. Um, it was mainly, from my recollection, British Airways and Virgin Atlantic would fly f from the U.K., and that's why British Airways was our preferred flight because our route of getting between Antigua and Kenya back then was through the UK, primarily because as an Antiguan's passport holder, we don't need a visa um, to get through the UK, to get through England, uh, because we have Schengen access and also access through the United Kingdom. So that was a preferred route. We didn't have to worry about visas. It's easy. You book your flight, and then we have a point of contact at the airline in case anything goes wrong. Hey, and you know what? In those days, the layover, because of the connecting flights, the layover used to be 12 hours, 12 hours in Gatwick Airport, North Terminal, if I can remember. 12-hour layover in, in Gatwick, and it, it was a long journey. It was a very long journey. Um, at least now, at the time of this recording, you have direct flights, you know, from Kenya to JFK, and then maybe you can connect 
to to Antigua and Barbuda. So 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 traveling was whew, was quite hectic at that point, and I can still remember that. British Airways flight. It used to leave at about midnight. I think it was either 11.55, somewhere around there. And they used to, the flight code. I used to remember, because we have to fill it on those um, immigration forms and, 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 and custom forms, BA flight 0065. I, I think 0065 was the inbound flight to Kenya, and, and 0064 was the outbound flight. But we used to use those flights, you know, regularly. And, and so I, I, I can just remember that experience of getting to... Um, Jomo Kenyatta International Airport, you know, around 10 p.m. we would check in. And back then security wasn't as tight as it was in today's world. So family could stay with you after you checked in. It, it, was, it was easy. Um, and so, so that's what it was. So we decided to go to Central Business District to change our flight or to confirm it and to change the flight. Uh, the two tasks we needed to do. So we traveled. We went through the UK as customary and this time, of course, without my father, which was a strange experience. Um, but that was the beginning of this new reality, you know, moving on. Um, as they say, I'm not so sure what moving on means when someone dies. Um, but you continue with life. You continue with life um, and with the not notable absences, notable, you know, gaps, as it were. We had to lay over into the airport because at that point, I can't remember exactly what was the reason, but my, my either my mom and Antiguan passport either had expired or something, so she was traveling on her Kenyan passport. And we, we didn't have time to apply for a visa. It took weeks or so to get a visa um, to go to the UK because usually what we would do, the 12-hour layover, we'd go out of the airport, find maybe a hotel or something, go around, you know, relax ourselves. So we had to lay over actually in the airport for 12 hours. That, that was for children, teenagers, that, that was difficult. No, you know, no iPads at this time, no social media. Uh, we had to be very innovative. So we would use the carts that you use for the luggage. We would push them around. You sleep on the carts at times because the chairs are so uncomfortable. You know, what an, what an experience. Um, I even remember seeing some of my cousins who were coming back from the UK to Antigua at that point. So at least we were able to play those machine games. Um, you know, yeah, life was, was very different back then. <laughs> anyway, we got back to Antigua safely. And I woke up the next morning. Because of being used to making those transatlantic flights and change of time zone, I knew I needed to acclimatize very quickly. And so I woke up the next morning early, I think around 7, 8 a.m. And I just, something just told me to turn the, the, the television on. And I turned the television on and it, it was on CNN. Um, it was on CNN. And there I saw on my screen, actually it was a split screen, a split screen. And I saw at the bottom of one of the split screens, a writing saying Nairobi, Kenya. And then on the other side saying... Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. So I was like, okay, what's going on? You know, I, I was still a bit disoriented. So I was like, am I still in Kenya or am I back in Antigua? You know, I was really trying to um, orient myself back because I woke up quite early feeling jet lag. And then I could just hear the, the news reporters saying that there's been an explosion. There's been an, what they're calling a terrorist attack in Nairobi and simultaneously in Dar es Salaam at the U.S. embassies, because this was August in 1998, because we came back, as I said, um, in August, uh, at the, towards the end of the summer break. And this was August 8th. And that is the day when um, Al-Qaeda 
carried out an attack on the U.S. embassies in Nairobi, simultaneously in Nairobi and in Tanzania. And I just stood there. I didn't sit. I just stood there looking at the screen and CNN wondering what is happening. And I was just like, I was just there like 24 hours ago around that area. Now, take note of this. <laughs> initially, we were to leave on the 9th or the 10th of August. That was when our flight was initially booked. So when I talked about going to International Lifehouse to change our ticket, all I know is that we would have had to go to International Lifehouse on August 8th, that morning, to change our ticket and to confirm it. We would have had to be there. Now, obviously, that's not the U.S. Embassy. It's, it's, it's not so far away. Um, the U.S. Embassy was at the corner of Haley Selassie Avenue and Moy Avenue. Uh, it's like maybe two blocks away from International Lifehouse, but in very close proximity very close proximity, and I just stood there just wondering what is going on. And of course, a flood of emotions was, was going through me. One, I was I was not happy that I wasn't, I was happy, obviously, that I wasn't near the commotion just in case anything would have happened. But two, I was also not happy that I left. I felt this sense of guilt that I should be back home, you know, in quotes, back home in Kenya to help my brothers and sisters through this, you know, um, to see how I can help and how I can support, you know. I, at this, I've always had this first aid respondent, you know, um, what, what is it, first aid respondent gene, if I could call it, or, or instinct in me to help. I, I don't know if it's because my dad was, was um, uh, a medical officer and he used to head a lot of the disaster preparedness unit. And so during hurricanes in Antigua, he would be the, one of the people constantly on the road helping to um, coordinate, you know, response responses, emergency responses. And we used to go with him, my brother and I, to help pack stuff out, pack food out. Um, those of you who may not be familiar, I mean, we, we've suffered a major hurricane in the Caribbean in 1989. I think it was Hurricane Hugo, perhaps one of the most devastating. And I remember my brother and I going with my dad to help pack out, you know, food supplies and, and military boots for people. Um, it, it was we, we were out of school for months and so on. So I, I guess I just had that in me. So when I looked at the television screens and saw this this explosion, you know, this this attack and people dead and, and you could see on the screens, you know, people wounded, I felt like, I mean, I should be there to help. I should be there to help. When I was telling my friends back in Antigua that I was literally, you know, close to that area like less than one day ago, I mean, they, they couldn't comprehend it, you know. And, and again, that disparity of people in one side of my life not understanding what goes on in the other side of life. You know, and it was so strange, but it also played on my mind, like, did I make the right decision? You know, and of course, because of Western media reporting this, it was made and amplified to be as bad as possible, uh, that Africa is not safe, you know, and, and that played with me. I must admit that played with me. And I was like, you know what? that's it. I'm never going back there anyway. I'll just go for a visit. Um, I'm happy I made my decision and I continued to just with my life in Antigua, progressing my life in Antigua. But that 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 hit me. That hit me just the way they were reporting it. I was like, I was there in that city. They were making it seem as if the whole place is a war zone. And it really irritated me. It irritated me so much. I, I re recall reading um, Jeff Koenange's book, a uh, very good read, and I recommend it to all travelers here. If you're interested in learning about seeing Africa and, and hearing Africa, you know, from an African perspective, you know, actually the book, I have it right here in my hands, you know, wonderful book, 
by Jeff Koinange. I recommend it highly. It's called Through My African Eyes. Uh, he details even his experience. He was reporting at that time for Reuters, I believe. And they were based in International Lifehouse also. So he made that journey with his crew and cameramen down to the scenes of the, of, of the explosion. I, I can recall reading from the book, he mentioned he saw a U.S. embassy employee you know, who was, I guess, blinded by the smoke. I don't know, but her vision was was impaired and she was walking, I, I think maybe the sixth floor and walking towards the edge, you know, of the of the floor and was about to fall and people had to shout and tell her, don't walk anymore because she was trying to, you know, move around but couldn't see. She, you know, could have just been a few steps away from, you know, just falling towards her death, you know, and he, he gives some of the experiences and that just... When reading that, I just like, yeah, I mean, this, this, he's telling the story from an African perspective. And that's the essence of, of Jeff's book and, and his purpose of the book. So I recommend it. I actually spoke with Jeff recently at a book fair. Um, uh, my book and his book are listed at a at, at textbook center, you know, the, the biggest textbook distributor in Eastern Central Africa. And um, he expressed interest in coming on the podcast, guys. Um, so I'm putting that out there and I'm going to hold him to it. I told him I'm going to hold it to it. So look out for an episode in the future where where I'll have the one and only Jeff Kwenhange coming to give us his experience of traversing the entire globe and and particularly through Africa reporting and, and being the African reportive and telling a narrative from an African perspective. That that's going to be, as he would say, smoking. You know, that's gonna be a smoking episode. So look out for that. And uh, I'm putting it out there because it's definitely gonna happen. I'm going to hound him, I mean follow up with him <laughs> to make sure he comes on the podcast to give us to give us his experience um around that. So but so back to that back to my experience. So that was that was decision main decision number one of of, of moving back to to Kenya. And yeah I decided that just perhaps wasn't the time. And that wasn't the time and I didn't want to be a victim or a you know a, a boy child you know this this classic boy child who's lost his father who you know just runs away or something like that so i said i want to face and grow up in the land of my father knowing that i could do something and make something of my life even you know without having my father there you know to to rise to the challenge to you know help support my family and just to you know make a life of meaning live a life of meaning so that that was what primarily led to my decision not to move back to Kenya at that time. And this was 1998. You know, as I told you guys, my, my journey of coming back to Africa is, a, is years of years of, of decisions and, and, and options and ETC. And why I look at this podcast as coming black, it's not just about physically moving back. It's about understanding being African is not does not mean being inferior. You know, being an African doesn't mean second class as, as you know in quotation marks being african doesn't mean that you're not you're not good enough that you're not sufficient right being african is it's just being human and that's something that's even more critical to raise awareness to as opposed to physically coming back to africa strangely enough strangely enough even as a teenager in 1998 if you were to ask me to consider moving to um, to America or to England, I would have actually been able to make that transition easier, strangely and sadly enough, because of the influence of the culture. 
I would have been able to easily navigate somehow, even with limited family presence. So strange because I'm familiar with it. it. It's publicized. I see it on the TV. I hear it. I see it in the movies. But a move to Africa was just so difficult at that point in time. There was so much to learn. The learning curve was so steep, a different way of life. I mean, it was a different world. It was just a different world, even physically seeing the world, seeing how things operate. You know, whenever I would come to Kenya, it was just different. It was too different from what I understood. And you can appreciate not having social media or YouTube at that time to get the real picture. I mean, as much as I would be going back and forth and seeing it physically for myself and experiencing it physically, it was still a sheltered life. It was still going where the places, you know, that you're told to go, not really experiencing it and immersing into it. It was much easier to move to you know, um, the States or to England than it was to move back to even where I was born, to Kenya. And that, that, is, that, is, that is so deep. That's so deep that and perhaps influenced my decision. I was like, okay, maybe this is not the right time to move because the learning curve would be too steep, you know, and then re- reintegrating into a new education system, you know, understanding different things. It was, it was just heavy at that point. And I definitely felt disappointed, but I quickly quashed that feeling. I was like, you know what, um, that's probably never going to happen. And at that point, I didn't think I would, it would ever come up ever again. Um, but I'll share that in future episodes, that that decision came up you know, a few more times throughout the years as I progressed into my adult life. And then eventually, I will, sh- I will tell you how I made that decision. Uh, it, it was so prophetic, um, that decision of coming back to Kenya. And, and I'll share that with you in a future episode. And so, travelers, this, this was our layover stop. And I, I wanted to just give you a bit more insight into my, my decisions or my attempts of, of coming back to Africa and, and what that meant. And I hope you've enjoyed this layover flight and we'll resume our regularly scheduled flights <laughs> in next week's episode. Um, I won't reveal who we have coming up next, uh, but stay tuned. Keep it locked. Remember to subscribe to the podcast um, available on major podcast platforms, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. Yeah, and those of you who are in Kenya or across African continent, you know, Spotify now is available in Kenya, Nigeria, and, and starting to to be available um, wider throughout the African continent. So you can definitely subscribe there. Please leave a review. Let me know what you're enjoying about the, the podcast, uh, comments, uh, what you would like for us to discuss on the podcast, and to help you in your return journey in coming back to Africa. So I've been your captain of this flight, uh, Captain Robert Agufana, and it's been my pleasure sharing with you my experience of coming black to Africa as, as we continue through this podcast. So look forward uh, to future episodes and definitely when we'll have um, Mr. Jeff Kwenange coming onto the podcast, I will definitely make a lot of noise about that and it's going to be an interesting conversation. We might even need to have two flights <laughs> for the wealth of experience that he has. Uh, grab a copy of his book. I will put a link in the show notes of where you can get a copy of his book. Uh, it's a great read of understanding uh, the parts or seeing Africa from a different perspective, you know, unencumbered from the Western influence. So grab, definitely grab a copy of his book and, and read it ahead of time so that when he does come on the podcast, uh, you can relate to his experiences. <laughs> All right, travelers, you have a safe journey. Keep safe and we'll see you in a future episode. Mm-hmm.